1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today.
2: Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. This Father's Day, I'll be remembering my grandfather's. Both of them grew up during the Great Depression, and my maternal grandfather was a World War II veteran involved in the D-Day invasion of Normandy. These men had incredible stories about their lives, and I wish we had them documented in one place. StoryWorth can do exactly that for you and your loved one. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question. What things are you proudest of in your life, or how did you decide to get married? StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is respond to the email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will then send you a copy of your loved one's response so you can enjoy it. And after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and photos into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the fathers in your life a unique heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. The following podcast contains explicit language and content
3: that may not be suitable for all listeners. In today's episode, we look at the other victims that were found along Ocean Parkway. What are the odds that two people would decide to dump sex workers here? And investigate whether or not Rex Heuerman could be responsible for all of them.
4: Does Rex Heuerman like dismemberment? Is there one serial killer and is there another murderer out there who's killed for completely different reasons?
3: Asa Ellerup, the wife of Rex Heuerman, causes a stir.
5: It's the first time we've actually seen Asa voluntarily show up for him. They locked eyes before he left.
6: My understanding is is that she doesn't believe that he was capable or committed
7: these acts. And public perception shifts. It sounds like she might be getting a lot of money. Is it fair? Is it fair to her? Is it fair to the victims? Is it fair to society? You know, it's, it's up for interpretation.
3: From ID and Joke Productions. This is Unraveled. Long Island Serial Killer. Before we get started, a reminder to catch up on our previous episodes. Going back to the beginning will give you a great sense of the scope of this case, the corruption that delayed justice, and the characters that make up the Suffolk County landscape. There is so much, not just to the history of this case, but the latest developments, that we can't recap it all. Take a listen. I promise it's worth it. On November 15th, the case against Rex Heuerman, the man accused of murdering three of the victims associated with the Long Island serial killer, inched just a little further
1: on its journey to justice.
3: It wasn't quite a hearing, more of a conference.
1: We had a very, what I would say, perfunctory court conference. We want to hand over sets of documents pertaining to either particular investigations or particular witnesses, so that way we can be able to confirm that we've in fact turned the material over and the defense would be able to sort of look at it and it'll make sense to them. That was Suffolk
3: County District Attorney Ray Tierney. The defense asked for some 75 pages of grand jury evidence that haven't yet been turned over.
1: We've turned over all aspects of the grand jury pertaining to the three charged cases. So that would leave something out, and I'll, I'll leave you to figure out what that, what, what that is.
6: So it relates to what's ongoing?
1: Yep, it, it relates to ongo- the ongoing aspect of the grand jury.
3: Clearly, the grand jury evidence that hasn't been turned over relates to Maureen Brainerd-Barnes, the very first of the Gilgo Four victims, but the one Rex Heuerman
1: has not been charged with. The grand jury in that matter is continuing. We anticipate it concluding shortly. But
7: when you say shortly, is that days, weeks, or months?
1: Shortly is shortly. Grand jury, uh, you go where the evidence takes you, especially when you're at the end of an investigation, you're, you're bringing in extraneous matters and you know potential witnesses, and that's not always subject to your schedules. From the day of
3: the arrest, we've known that a grand jury decision on Maureen's case is coming. Only time will tell if we get word before the holidays. This grand jury has been impaneled since June, so it's not a stretch to assume everyone would like to wrap it up before the end of the year. The defense also asked for lab reports, which Tierney's office delivered that day,
1: as well as notes going back to 2010. Basically everything that we've done that's not ongoing, since I've been involved in the case, has been turned over. It's a little bit more difficult for me to turn over what's happened 12 years in the past, and we just want to do it in a way that we can be confident that we've given them everything. The reason
3: the defense is so insistent on those notes is not just good legal defensive strategy. It's also because the defense believes law enforcement had been close to charging another individual with these crimes. Here is defense attorney Michael Brown.
6: As many of you know, there were so many suspects over the years. Mr. Cini, you folks know that he actually wanted somebody arrested for this crime. His name is not Rex Euerman. They had another suspect very close to Mr. Euerman's home in Massapequa Park. The lab says that he potentially is a donor for that hair. What they don't tell you is there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people just in the metropolitan area that are potentially in that same pool of donors. So to jump to, it's his DNA is completely fantasy.
3: While all of the focus is understandably on the Gilgo 4 victims, we did get a clarification from District Attorney Tierney at his press conference pertaining to the other victims that were found along Ocean Parkway.
1: As we said, right from the onset, this case, this initial investigation, had to do with the Gilgo 4. We've charged three out of the four victims. That fourth case is winding down. We have been working on those other cases and investigating it. That investigation will continue. So
7: there's no grand jury for the other six sets of remains?
1: The specific grand jury which we're working on pertains to the Gilgo 4. While the district attorney
3: previously stated he used the grand jury as a tool to investigate, this grand jury is focused only on the Gilgo Four. And so while the investigation into the other victims continues, it may not be with the grand jury. More on the other victims a little later on. But first, it wasn't so much the procedure of this court conference that made news, but rather everything surrounding it.
1: Rex Huerman is expected in court this morning. In a new twist, so is his estranged wife.
5: Lock the door. Surrounded by state court officers, Asa Ellera, the estranged wife of accused Gilgo Beach serial killer Rex Huerman, attends his court appearance. A pack of reporters and cameras chased Rex Huerman's wife into the courthouse.
7: Get in our way,
1: just push the yep,
7: no there was a huge press scrum uh, of people trying to get images of her. Can you give us anything? It's the first time we've actually seen Asa voluntarily
5: show up for him. You could see her in blue walking inside the courthouse beside her attorney. It happened a little after nine o'clock this morning. And her attorney says she plans to be present for the criminal case from here on out. The press was all
3: over her appearance in court. But Asa Ellerup has been making news in the weeks leading up as well. First, Rex Heuerman has transferred the ownership of their home into Asa's name. It's clear that Rex isn't getting out anytime soon. Even if he's acquitted at trial, that would be quite some time away. Asa taking full possession of the home, which our research shows is fully paid off, should help her make financial decisions for her and her family. Second, Asa visited Rex
8: in jail. The hour-long jail visit in the Suffolk County facility was the first for the couple. We don't know what they discussed. The mother of two filed for divorce from Huerman shortly after his arrest, but recently visited him for the first time in jail.
6: Other than the correction officers and myself, he hasn't really had any interaction with anybody. So the fact that his wife, his family member, was able to see him and they talked, that, that was important to him. He indicated that he was very
3: happy to see her. And third, Asa has reportedly signed a deal with a streamer To document her life for a possible series or documentary a production crew and vans were seen around her home people also reported seeing film crews at the court appearance though her attorney's office has denied the crew was present at court all of this action has brought about extra scrutiny to asa's every move
7: was there any interaction between the two of them in court that you saw just as he was leaving he turned around and looked in the gallery and he saw his wife sitting there, and I looked at her face. She gave a, a, a very slight smile. I, I didn't see him smile at her, but they certainly looked at each other. They locked eyes before he left.
3: That was Laura Engel, reporting for News Nation, who was present in court that day. I reached out to Laura to get her firsthand account. Tell me about when you arrived at court on November 15th. What were kind of your key takeaways from that day?
7: It was certainly very different from when we have covered these hearings before. Everybody kind of expected that she was going to be there. So we did have a very high level of presence from the media there. There were a lot of cameras. I got there super early. You can tell when there's a news camera, and then we could tell when there's a documentary film camera, just nicer, bigger, different-looking cameras that were there. And so the reporters that were there, we all said to each other, all right, when these guys start moving... We're going to move to where they're going because we know that they're trying to capture her coming into the parking lot, which is exactly what happened. So with that in mind, she gets out of the Mercedes of her attorney, Robert Macedonio, and in the backseat, there are other cameramen that followed her out. And as soon as she got out, she was completely surrounded she had no comment for us going into or coming out of that court proceeding that day. But wow, it was, uh, I mean, it was intense because there was a lot of people just trying to get her to say something. When I saw her in Massapequa Park, she was sitting in front of her house in a, like a camping chair, just hanging out, trying to be in her yard, trying to be outside. And she is very casually dressed. So to see her at the courthouse, She was wearing a teal sweater. She had, you know, hair and makeup, uh, you know, looking just a little more spruced up than we've seen her before. So uh, a definite difference in appearance, a different vibe in how we've seen her before, because she, you know, she walked right in front of us into the courthouse. And again, she didn't say anything, but it was really interesting to feel that energy and to see this happen.
3: Were you able to make it inside the courtroom?
7: I did. I was in when Asa was in the courtroom and she had people on each side of her. She had her attorney, a member of her attorney's staff. When he came out, she kind of looked at him and she kind of did a, "Hmm," like, there he is, kind of a look. She just kind of looked at him like, well, there he is. He's in handcuffs. And remember, he is huge. He's tall. He's big. He's wide. His hands were behind his back and he had two sets of handcuffs. So he had a handcuff on each wrist that had to be joined together in back of him because of his size. He was, you know, in a suit or a blazer and slacks. When he turned around at the end, he kind of looked back. She looked at him. They just kind of had a a moment of acknowledgement, like, I see you. And she did have a slight smile. Uh, I didn't see her teeth. You know what I mean? She wasn't grinning or smiling really big. She just kind of gave him a smile, like a nod. He probably knew that she was going to be there because we know that she had a jailhouse visit the week before. She did not say anything on the way out, and off she went with her attorney and the crew, and that was the last that we saw of her on that day. I do want to talk about the last court appearance, the one before Asa had come to the court, because when you're sitting there in the courtroom and you watch him come in, you're looking at him and you're looking around the courtroom the sister of Melissa Bartholomew Amanda and the sister of Marine Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Kahn. They were sitting in the courtroom together in back of me. And so when I turned around and I looked at them, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, here they are, and they are looking at this suspect who has been accused of killing their sisters. I was watching her watch him, and he had just a couple of words. But I kept thinking to myself, is she listening to him and wondering... If it sounds like the call that she got all those years ago, those taunting phone calls that the the killer told her how he killed her sister, sexually assaulted her, and, you know, you've got to wonder what she was thinking, listening to him, watching him, looking at him, taking him in as this very large presence and watching Melissa Kahn, too, for that matter. And I followed both of them out of the courtroom as they went to the elevator. And look, it's, it's hard, obviously. It's, it's devastating for them. And it's hard as a reporter, too, because you're leering in at this very personal and private and devastating moment that somebody is going through. I followed them to the elevator, and I saw Melissa, you know, break down in tears when she got into the elevator. Clearly, she was holding it together, that whole long hallway walk from the courtroom to the elevator. And as the uh, bailiffs were surrounding her and protecting her from us, it was just, it was very, you could feel it. It was a very, very difficult day for her. And I'll be curious to see if we'll be seeing more of the victim's families. And for that matter, so you've you've got the idea, right, of the victim's families and Asa Ellaret being in the same courtroom at the same time. Is that going to happen? It could.
3: Prior to November 15th, did
7: you cover... Ace's jail visit with Rex prior to that? We did not know it had happened until after it happened. This was the first time that she had laid eyes on him since his arrest, but she had only seen him the night before his arrest. She's not allowed to bring anything in. Some people speculated that she might have brought documents in for him to sign, you know, maybe stuff with the documentary film crew, maybe something about the house. But I have heard from the jail staff that you can't do that, that any paperwork has to be actually sent in and approved. She, as far as I have been told with my sources, she came in, they had a one hour visit. They are allowed to have an embrace, but I don't know if they did because that was not shared. It was a one hour visit and she did not share what They talked about with her attorney, Robert Macedonio advised her, look, if you're going to talk to him, you know, probably don't talk about the case. So we just simply don't know what was talked about. You just got to imagine, like, what was that like?
3: Is there anything else
7: regarding Asa and the documentary? She is working with a documentary filmmaker. It was widely speculated and reported. Everybody had said it was going to be Peacock and that, in fact, it's an NBC project. They had the trucks out front there was film gear going in and out of the house and there's people that said you know this isn't fair and you know there's all these victims and all of the expenses of uh, you know going to court and going back and forth to ocean parkway and, and traveling and just just the daily toll emotionally and financially uh, back when things were developing years ago to today it sounds like she might be getting a lot of money is it fair is it fair to her? Is it fair to the victims? Is it fair to society? You know, it's, it's up for interpretation. More on that later.
3: Seeing the moves Asa has been making lately has raised quite a few questions, but they all boil down to, what is she thinking? Here is Michael Brown, Rex's defense attorney again.
6: My understanding is, is that she doesn't believe that he was capable or committed these acts.
3: That's the first time we've heard this. Ace's attorney's office chose not to provide a comment on this exact statement, neither confirming nor denying it. But one could surmise that if she truly thought he was guilty of the heinous crimes he's accused of, she wouldn't necessarily visit him in jail or sit in the courtroom, giving him a smile. What is clear now is that she's withholding judgment. Here's her attorney, Robert Macedonio, speaking with Ashley Banfield on News Nation.
6: The only thing that we have, meaning we, you, me, and the entire world population, is what the prosecution has put out in press statements. She's at the point now where she would like to see for herself and hear for herself what are the allegations against her husband. Nobody wants to believe that their spouse that they laid next to in bed for the 27 years is capable of these kind of heinous crimes. From the day that he was arrested, she has been told, your husband did this, he killed this person, put her there. And she's been processing that, trying to recreate 10, 15 years ago where she was and what happened, which is impossible. So she needs to see and hear it for herself, which I think many of us would have to, to try to believe our spouse is capable of this kind of heinous crime.
3: I talk with psychiatrist Dr. Angela Arnold about ASA next. What do Ace's actions these last few weeks tell us about her and the inner workings of the Huerman family? And later, we look at the other six victims found along Ocean Parkway. Could Rex Huerman be responsible for all of them?
8: Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.
0: Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on blue nile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab grown diamond bands. All hand finished and graded for excellence.
2: Nothing is more personal or specific than our health and well-being, so it's really weird to me that most weight loss plans are one-size-fits-all. Noom, however, is different. Noom understands that every single person is unique, so they build personal plans to meet individual needs. I appreciate that Noom is designed this way, that it meets each person where they're at, and that its approach is based in psychology and biology. And not only that, this approach is grounded in science. Noom has published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about it. Noom also wants you to enjoy food so it doesn't restrict what you can eat or shame you for treating yourself. I actually overheard a conversation about Noom at my local cafe the other day. Both diners were talking about all these foods they've discovered that they really love thanks to recipes they found on the Noom app. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. This Father's Day, I'll be remembering my grandfathers. Both of them grew up during the Great Depression, and my maternal grandfather was a World War II veteran involved in the D-Day invasion of Normandy. These men had incredible stories about their lives, and I wish we had them documented in one place. StoryWorth can do exactly that for you and your loved one. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question. What things are you proudest of in your life, or how did you decide to get married? StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is respond to the email with a story, long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will then send you a copy of your loved one's response so you can enjoy it. And after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and photos into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the fathers in your life a unique heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase.
3: Asa Ellerup, wife of accused serial killer Rex Eurman, has made a lot of headlines these past few weeks, and public perception of her seems to be shifting. So I reached back out to Dr. Angela Arnold. You may remember her from previous episodes. Dr. Arnold has been practicing psychiatry for over 25 years. We talked about Asa, what the recent revelations tell us about her relationship with Rex, and thoughts on the documentary crew she's allowed into her home. Here's our conversation. Other family members of serial killers I've spoken to have said things to me like, I don't really remember the first year. Because they're in some sort of shock, you know, processing period, just disassociated. Ace is under a microscope during these few months. How could that be potentially
5: impacting her behavior? It's got to all be so shocking. We don't know what she was like before this. I imagine she's scared to death. And that's why I think she's keeping quiet. She's being aided by her attorney and whatever other people are on her team.
3: One thing I noticed, we haven't had any family members coming forward. In a lot of these very traumatic cases, like a cousin or like an aunt, like Ace's sister, we're not seeing any of their friends, defending them on the internet. It seems as though there was some isolation. Like this family seems very insular.
5: Whenever people are isolated like that, you have to wonder if there's some sort of abuse going on inside of the home. If he was so controlling that he isolated her because he didn't want her to have any friends There's a string of narcissism that goes inside of this. Narcissism, serial killers, those things are sort of combined. And narcissists want to isolate their supply. He didn't want anybody saying anything to her like, why is your husband spending the night in New York? I'm just making that up. Just anything that he might have done, he didn't need to have that questioned. And if some outsiders came in and questioned that, it would all fall apart.
3: Dysfunction can't see dysfunction. You know, unless someone new comes in.
5: That's exactly right. It's just not a big shock to me that that he kept her isolated. I'm sure there were a lot of secrets.
3: We know that they've had some phone calls. We know that there was a jail visit prior to this court appearance. We know that he looked at her in court and there was
5: some sort of acknowledgement. I know that people were saying that she smiled at him. You know, a smile can, can just be an automatic response. There are people that I smile at that I may not want to speak to, but you smile at them also to kind of keep them at bay, don't you? Because it can be like a people-pleasing response. Yes. She's under a lot of pressure. She knows that everyone's looking at her. One of the articles even said that she didn't have any makeup on. Oh, give the woman a break, right? They're going to describe her clothing. I mean, she is so under a microscope. And now It doesn't matter what she does. Someone's going to comment on it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. She didn't work. He was kind of the leader of the family, the breadwinner. What happens when that person is pulled from somebody's life who's never had to, like, call the shots for all that time? Does that leave her vulnerable to maybe somebody else manipulating her?
5: That's something that everybody should think about. Because whether he was a good husband or a bad husband or whether he was controlling or whatever, That's who she lived with every day. And they had their routines and they had their way of doing things. And possibly he paid all the bills and she stayed home and raised the children. Now she's got to do all of this and take care of everybody. I think that would be a daunting task for anyone that was not necessarily out and about in the world all the time, just to have to change roles like that and to take all of that on. So she's got so much coming at
3: her. She's visiting him in jail and she's doing a show and like public perception is starting
5: to change. I have a feeling that somebody got to her, a news organization got to her and said, you are leaving money on the table. You're going to need money to live. Someone is going to financially benefit from this story. Somebody's going to write a book. Why shouldn't she benefit from that? I don't really have a problem with her getting paid for that. Her daughter lost her job because she worked at the father's architectural firm. People aren't going to touch those kids with a 10-foot pole. How are they supposed to support themselves? She got $56,000 on a GoFundMe account. That's not going to last her any time.
3: We know she's struggling with breast cancer. We don't know her prognosis, but we do know she has a son who has special needs. We don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. And I also suspect that perhaps the visit to him and the court appearance was prompted by the producers of this (laughs) show, perhaps.
5: I do, too. She stayed away for a while. Someone has gotten to her. She's just a woman who happened to be living with a serial killer. I don't think she knew. Unless they can bring forth more evidence about this, that maybe she was involved or something. I think that we should all have as our baseline that she did not know what he was doing.
3: I was thinking about the possibility that could she just be in like sort of a screw it mode? Because like how much worse could it get? Like public perception wise, she's been called the wife of a serial killer. People are saying that they saw her at swingers clubs. Is it possible that she was pushed there and now she's just sort of like hands up in the air? It gives her a voice, doesn't it? Is it possible he's still exerting some
5: power over her? Definitely. I would bet anything that the sight of him triggers her. And there is no way she's gotten over that. I hope that she has somebody really good that she's talking to, some sort of therapist, because she's going to need that to guide her through this.
3: Asa Ellerup has a long road ahead of her, but it won't ever be as long as that of the families of the victims found along Ocean Parkway. For some of them, this absolute horror story started in the 1990s. Rex Heuerman has been charged with the murder of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. District Attorney Ray Tierney is working with a grand jury to see if he can get charges filed for the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. These four victims found along Ocean Parkway are known as the Gilgo Four. They were the first to be found in the search for Shannon Gilbert, but six more victims would be discovered. Jessica Taylor, Valerie Mack, also known as the Manorville Two, Karen Vergata, the recently identified Fire Island Jane Doe. An unidentified female victim known as Peaches, because of a distinct tattoo and her toddler. And last but not least, an unidentified biologically male victim found in women's clothing, known as either Asian Male Doe or Gilgo Beach Doe. These 10 victims, together with Shannon Gilbert, were known as the victims of the Long Island serial killer. With Rex Huerman's arrest, one of the immediate questions posed was whether or not he could be responsible for all of the victims found along Ocean Parkway. A couple of weeks ago, I drove back out to Gilgo Beach and Ocean Parkway to see if the place gave me any new insights. It's the first time I've been back there since the arrest of Rex Hewerman. Still, the area feels so much smaller than it appears when you look at it on a map. It's still just makes you feel like it has to be one person. Perhaps it's the remoteness of it. Rex herman worked at Jones Beach very close to here and it kind of makes you feel like these were the stomping grounds and there's something beyond him just having worked there that drew him to this place. If you look at these houses, these are stunning beach homes super expensive. And we've seen Rex Huerman's house, which is, you know, in total disrepair, chaos, not a super expensive home. And it's almost as like he wanted to be amongst all of this. So he kind of built his own weird graveyard so he could at least have like a piece of this. That's how it feels to me. Do
0: you know why it's called Gilgo Beach?
3: I guess there was this guy named Gil and he would always catch a lot of fish, and it was called Gilgo Beach because it's where Gilgo's. <laughs> I'm not even joking. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's like a bad dad joke, but it stuck, and now it's even weirder that it's like got this connotation for having now been a dumping ground. What are the odds that two people would decide to dump sex workers here? Because it's not like we're finding other kinds of killings. It's not like we've seen a gang murder dump here. It just seems so specific. While the location itself gives me the sense that one killer is responsible for all of the Ocean Parkway victims, the methods in which these victims were killed and the way the remains were left differ tremendously. It's hard not to wonder if there are more killers at play. I reached out to Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, professor, as well as a private investigator. She's been an expert witness and court-approved evaluator and has spent years talking to and trying to understand criminal behavior. Our conversation focused on serial killers and whether the evidence in or around Ocean Parkway as we currently know it favors a one or multiple killer theory. I'm sure you were familiar with the unsolved Long Island serial killer case, at least to some degree. Now, following the arrest of the suspect, Rex Eurman, did you have observations about the the unnamed killer prior? And when that suspect becomes public facing, like, did they align with what you thought?
4: I think there was so much confusion for a number of different reasons before a suspect was arrested, at least for three of the victims. And I think that's for a couple of different reasons. One being that two other serial killers were arrested first, other murderers kind of in that area. And so that certainly did, I think, make it very confusing. And then, of course, the fact that when you look at the actual victims that have been kind of connected to each other, whether they actually are or not, all of them remains to be seen. You know, you do see a man, a toddler, you see white women, you see an African-American woman, and, and you see a lot of different MOs in terms of this particular group has been dismembered. These are, are very different. They're wrapped. And so I think it has been very, very confusing. In addition to all the political things that were potentially going on or within the police force, I
3: think it is a difficult case. We get into the details of the case next. Here's my continued conversation with Dr. Joni Johnston. You mentioned the other two serial killers that were active within the same sort of window, which I'm assuming you mean Rifkin and Bitrolf. And there's others, too, on Long Island at the same time. As far as dumping grounds go, have you heard of other cases of serial killers by happenstance selecting the same dumping ground, and I know several gangs like down in the Texas Killing Fields and things like that. But these sexually motivated crimes, which they appear to be, multiple killers sharing dumping grounds.
4: I think that's a really interesting question, and, and the first thing I did think of was a Texas Killing Fields because that's a pretty infamous area. I think it depends on how narrowly or broadly you define that, because for example, there was a lot of times that law enforcement would find these bodies of of young women, oftentimes along the highway. And so we definitely had a number of serial killers who turned out to be truckers who were dumping women on the side of the road. They were dumping women at truck stops. Now, do I know of one where two women from different serial killers were dumped at the same truck stop? None comes to mind. But if you look at, if you define it broadly, you know, in terms of sharing a, quote, dumping site, certainly, you know, there have been a number of women who've been dumped along the side of the road and the serial killers have some things in common.
3: You know, this specific area... On a map, it looks so big, but when you go there, it's really small. Then you learn other circumstances about this area, like how trucks can't get there because the overpasses are too low. And there's all this information that would exclude it from something like you're talking about. Like it really is such a specific area. I think that the
4: more secluded, the more isolated, the more remote, the less access general people have to it then the more that does at least argue for there being one killer that is in direct contrast to us talking about along the highway when you have millions of people who are going on this highway over time or sharing truck stops which are spread out over the united states i'm not convinced that there are two serial killers out there i think it is possible
3: Are there practical reasons serial killers choose these areas or are there sort of emotional, paraphilic sort of reasons?
4: I think when they're looking at a place to dispose of victims or leave victims, I think there are both practical as well as psychological or emotional reasons that they oftentimes pick. The practical part of it is, of course, where is somebody that people aren't going to visit? Where is a remote area? Where's a place I can hide this person that reduces the chances that somebody else is going to find them? And then there's the psychological reasons, which can be, I want to be able to see these victims. I want to be able to visit these victims. And this is my comfort area. This is an area that I'm very familiar with, that I know the traffic that goes in and out. I know the people who visit or don't visit. I know the times of the years where there's likely to be more you know, foot traffic and not. And so I think it's a combination of those. So there's a practical part of it, but there's also oftentimes a psychological part of it. Sometimes serial killers will talk about this kind of like, this is my graveyard, or, this is my trophy garden, or these kinds of things. There's almost a sense of ownership that they feel over this space that they're familiar with.
3: As far as Rex Huerman in relation to this area on Ocean Parkway, we've since learned that he had a summer job working at Jones Beach, which is right there within a stone's throw from this area. He lived 20 minutes away. This would have been the beach he would have visited. So does that sort of fall into like these more, I don't wanna call them emotional. I don't know that he feels emotional, but these other attachments to this area.
4: Certainly, Rex Hurman is somebody, it seems like, who has spent his whole life, basically, in this area. And so, that would be consistent with picking a place like this, a place that he's visited, that he's familiar with, that he's driven on many, many occasions. He's lived there year-round. So, again, he knows the busy times of the year. He knows the times when it's going to be more desolate. And that would be very consistent. It would be a, a big surprise to me to find out that there was a serial killer who lived in downtown or lived in Brooklyn who, you know, never spent much time on Long Island, who was trekking out there with victims. There's logistical concerns as well, in addition to the practical ones of it being a remote area. Where am I killing my victims? And then how do I get them out to the area that where I am? Ideally, you, you want someplace that was relatively close to the place where you're killing them.
3: We know that Rex Huerman has been directly implicated in the four latest victims' murders, the Gilgo Four, which... Span from 2007 to 2009. So dialing it back to the two victims before that, those were the two Manorville victims, Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor, whose torsos were found in 2000 and 2004, respectively. What do you make of dismembered victims in relation to Rex Ewerman? I certainly don't think the fact
4: that the earlier victims were dismembered rules out Rex Furman because people dismember their victims for a number of different reasons. I mean, you might have somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer who had a strong interest in necrophilia, who seemed to take a lot of pleasure in this dissection and, and experimentation and those kinds of things. And then you have serial killers who dismember for very practical reasons. I don't want to get caught that's my motive. So I might not get any pleasure whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it might be disgusting. I know at one point, Joel Rifkin, I think, said he quit dismembering his victims because it was disgusting to him. He didn't enjoy that. It was just a matter of making sure that the heads were removed and the fingertips were removed in an attempt to make sure they couldn't be identified.
3: And it is, if, say, hypothetically, Rex Hurman is responsible for all of these, I mean, his earliest victim would have been in 96, and we have dismemberment there, and then the dismemberment would hypothetically end in 2007 so could it be that he liked dismembering but then the place where he did that the time he had to do that maybe something socially changed for him like he got married i do think that circulars
4: evolve i mean most of them will talk about experimenting with different things and it's also a learning process for them so not only can it change but they actively change it by experimenting does rex human like dismemberment i've never met rex human i've never talked to him From what I've seen of him, from what I've read of him, I would be surprised to think that that he would like dismemberment. I think it's the fact that he is somebody who's an architect, who seems to be somewhat precise in the way he operates and those kinds of things. I think of dismemberment as being very, very messy. I can see him dismembering to evade capture, to evade law enforcement, to think he's smarter than everybody else, like the burner phones and some of the other things. That seems consistent with who I think Rex Furman thinks he is. And I can see him enjoying torturing other people, looking at the pornography that he's apparently researched and been interested in, given some of the things that people have said about him, separate from anything sexual in terms of some of the things he said that seemed somewhat sadistic in nature. But the dismemberment part of it, from what I've read about him and seen would surprise me that it was a sexual pleasure kind of thing.
3: Going back to another one of the victims associated with the Long Island serial killer case that has not been identified yet, she's referred to as Peaches, and her torso was found back in the 90s in Hempstead Lake State Park in New York. And then in the spring of 2011, when they continued to find body parts after discovering the Gilgo Four, they found her appendages and they also found a toddler who has been linked two peaches genetically. So when you see that there's now a mother and a toddler associated, perhaps with this series of killings, what are your initial observations about what that could mean and whether that makes any sense?
4: That is such a puzzle, I think, for a lot of people. And two potentially very different theories, I think, come to mind. One is, is there one serial killer and is there another murderer out there? who has killed Peaches and her daughter for completely different reasons. So one is, what is this anomaly? This is so different. This mm-hmm. woman is African-American. There's a toddler associated with her. Uh, the toddler's not harmed. So there doesn't seem to be any sexual component to the toddler. So that's one possibility. And the other one, I think, would just be that this is somebody who, unfortunately, this toddler is collateral damage. Somehow this toddler was unexpected. Was brought along at the last minute or whatever, and that the agenda kind of trumped the circumstances. And so Peaches, the mom, was murdered, which was a plan, and that this toddler was murdered because, again, this toddler was along. What do you do with this toddler? You can't let this toddler go because they're going to be looking for the mom, et cetera, et cetera.
3: It really is a puzzle and it's very sad. So then we have the mother being dismembered and the toddler not. So what does that tell you?
4: There are endless possibilities. To me, that tends to support this second theory, which is perhaps this toddler was collateral damage and I hate to use those words, but you know what I'm saying here that this there was no malice intended at least initially toward this toddler. This toddler was murdered just for practical kind of reasons. There was a sense of this is this is different. This is a special
3: little person. We have one other victim who is unidentified, who also appears to be a departure from the victimology of the others, and that's the biological male who is found in women's clothing. We also see with that victim a completely different method of homicide. We see blunt force trauma. When I
4: see a victim that's just been beaten to death, essentially particularly if there's not any sense of sexual assault, but even if there is, that just says to me, just pure rage, just pure rage. Does this mean that this is a different killer? And it could be. I think the fact that on Rex Hurman's searches, the fact that there was at least, so I think, one search that had something like Asian twink or something like that in there gives, a, again, a little evidence that perhaps this victim doesn't exclude Rex Hurman
3: from the mix. The diversity you spoke of is pretty evident in those Google searches. And I also found it interesting, you know, out of the hundreds of thousands of searches Rex Hureman conducted over probably a five-year period, investigators chose to put that in those bail documents. And this is just total speculation. Is it possible that he was not into that? Then he murdered this individual. And when I say he, I mean the killer. It doesn't need to be Rex. But the rage makes it seem as though maybe he was tricked.
4: You mentioned that the rage being not a satisfying encounter is if the perpetrator, Rex Heerman or not, is a sexually sadistic serial killer. And I do believe whoever the perpetrator is, is. Then that does not necessarily mean that that encounter is not pleasurable in a weird kind of way it may be that because of this person's gender, this person's the way they present themselves or whatever, that this calls for a different kind of sadism. My initial thought was, okay, this is about rage or whatever, which it may be the case. But as we're talking, I think another alternative explanation is that sometimes there's a controlled rage, meaning, you know, I tend to think of somebody's you know, being beaten to death as uncontrolled rage. And yet we do know that there are people who choose to annihilate somebody, basically, and their rage is very controlled. And that could be a different source of pleasure for him. So these unusual or deviant sexual interest, and in particular, the, you know, the really scary ones are sexually sadistic. And so they get off on not just, you know, the murder in and of itself oftentimes is not the thrill as much as the... You know, the torture or the inflicting pain. And oftentimes, I think too, there's this incredible need for domination and power and control. And a lot of times, I think sex becomes an avenue for that. So when we think about sexually motivated, I think sometimes that's a misnomer. You know, it's almost more about the domination and the power and control and sex kind of being the avenue for that, as opposed to it being sex is a motivator.
3: We mentioned a couple of the other serial killers that were active around the same time, some of these earlier victims would have been murdered. So John Bitroff specifically was arrested for murdering two sex workers in the early 90s, and he's suspected of a third as well. And in Rex Heuermann's search history, there were Google searches about John Bitroff. John Bitrolf was also, until the arrest of Rex Hewerman, a prime suspect in the Long Island serial killer case. And John Bitrolf was arrested in 2014 for the murders that were cold. One of the things that we seem
4: to know pretty clearly about Rex Hewerman is he followed the Long Island serial killer investigation. He was very invested in finding out what was going on with that. And I suspect that that query... Of John Bitrolf, who was a, a kind of an ongoing suspect in the Long Island serial killer, was motivated as much by that or more by that than anything else. That you know he was probably thrilled to death. I mean, if he is a perpetrator, that somebody else was being considered a very very strong suspect, and it would have been alarming for him, I would imagine, to to realize that this person has now been arrested, and then he's not charged, he's not connected anymore with these victims.
3: I want to pivot to. Rex Heuerman or serial killers in general and their relationships with their family members and what sort of observations you've made throughout your career as far as how those family systems tend to work?
4: It has always been incredible to me, the absolute variability in terms of serial killers who have families and those dynamics. I do find, I think sometimes that the more organized ones are the ones who are, Kind of more, I guess, smarter. The ones who are professionals, able to kind of hold down a job, tend to be ones who are more likely to compartmentalize different areas of their life. And they are the ones who are more likely to have kind of this double life going on. Where here is here, I am at home, and here I am as a father. And and yeah, you know, maybe my wife notices that I'm you know gone a little bit more than I should be. Or or sometimes you'll have you know spouses who'll say later on, well, I was wondering if he was having an affair. I, you know, I, I was suspicious of certain things, but. Of course, they didn't think that their husband was a serial killer. It runs the gamut. For the most of us, our relationships are based on trust. And unless we have a reason to think otherwise, we might go down the, well, maybe he's having an affair path. We don't jump from something's not right to, I wonder if he's a serial killer I'm reading about in the news.
3: Rex Herman's wife has been the subject of a lot of scrutiny. People are saying things like, how is it possible that she didn't
4: know? And it does actually still seem as if, Asa Ellerop was out of town when these murders occurred, as far as we know. Now, there's been some speculation more recently that's come out that maybe there was some swinging going on in the family, maybe that she was home when some sex workers came over. There's even been, I think, one witness who's come forward and saying that she thinks she saw a woman who disappeared, Karen Vergata, after they left and and Asa Ellerop was home. If she was involved in that, it, it would be a little bit confusing to me why she might be at home and being involved in one person's disappearance, and yet there's documentation of the family being out of state or out of the country for other ones. There are miles and miles or there are oceans apart between couples who are swinging or engaging in consensual sites with other couples, no matter what you think about it or what your morals are and being a part or being, having knowledge of your husband torturing and killing women
3: people are saying that ace is not responding the way that they'd expect her to
4: i understand why it's hard we were all willing initially to think this person was a victim had this husband that was a monster that she didn't know about gee she files for divorce right away there are a lot of people who applauded her for that and said what you know right on way to go etc people were trying to help her financially And I think there's been a sense of betrayal from some people feeling like, okay, wait a minute, this is the same person who's now saying she's going to show up at her husband's trial. She's now allegedly being part of a documentary, signed some kind of deal. I understand that. I do think it's much more complicated than that. I would be astonished to find that she was any kind of active participant in this or that she had active knowledge of him murdering women. I I would be astonished. I I could be wrong about that. I mean, I absolutely could be. But I would would really be astonished by that, especially given the fact that she's got a a special needs child, the fact that she was out of the country when when some of these murders occurred. Until I convinced otherwise, or there's evidence otherwise, I'm not going to be throwing stones at her.
3: One killer or multiple killers. Let us know what you think at unraveledtips at gmail.com. For all things pertaining to the Long Island serial killer case, keep it right here as we continue to follow the investigation and keep you up to date on all the latest revelations. And remember, if you haven't had a chance to listen to our early episodes on this case, please take a moment to do so. And if you would like to contribute to our story, or if you know Rex Heuerman, please send an email to us at unraveledtips at gmail.com or you can contact me directly on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers and writers of this podcast are Joke Finciune, Biagio Messina, and myself, Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Our editor is Caitlin Cleveland. Lisa Rybikoff is our associate producer. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.
8: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
7: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.
2: Dan and Nancy reside in the peaceful suburbs just outside of Portland, where they are living out their golden years. Their marriage spans over two decades and is seen as a pillar of the community. But when Dan is found dead in his classroom, Nancy finds herself at the center of a murder case that could be ripped from the pages of her novels. Binge all episodes of Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.